Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center and you can also find this link in the show notes. Today, we will talk about institutionalized expert groups. Now, if you don't know what that is, you need to stay tuned and we will explain it to you. We will talk about those groups and we will talk about expert influence in policy and decision-making, specifically in hybrid and non-democratic regimes. Again, don't be confused if you don't understand fully what it is. We have a, an expert here as well who will explain us what these expert groups are. And we will also obviously highlight why this is important in the business context. My guest today is Vera Aksionova. She is a fellow at the University of Vienna and principal investigator of the project Expert Knowledge in Times of Crisis, uncovering interaction effects between think tanks, media, and politics. In this project, she examines how knowledge about crises is produced and communicated by expert professionals in political settings beyond consolidated liberal democracies, how political and societal actors use this knowledge and how much influence it has on policymaking. Before joining the University of Vienna, Vera worked in research, science management, and policy consulting, including as the managing director of Academics in Solidarity, which is a transnational mentoring program for at-risk scholars. That was at Free University of Berlin. She was also a postdoctoral researcher and an assistant professor for international integration at Justus Liebig University, which is in Gießen, very close to Frankfurt, where I am based. Vera was a Perfort Next Generation Fellow with the Carnegie Endowment's Euro-Atlantic Security Initiative. And she is the founding co-chair of the ECPR Research Network on Statehood, Sovereignty and Conflict. So, you're a political scientist, obviously, that uh, gets clear. So, I'm very happy to have you on the show because that's my background as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now, if I'm a typical listener of our podcast, who is usually someone who is interested in international relations, global affairs, but looks at these things through the lens of business, I am probably wondering now, what the hell is this about? And first of all, what are these expert groups? Can you give us a very brief definition of what you understand these groups to be? Yes, of course. First of all, thank you so much for, for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Well, as you introduced the topic, I am interested in institutionalized expert groups, and particularly think tanks are one form of those expert groups, such as your own think tank, the, the think tank that you work in. The only difference is that my research is uh, mainly centered on think tanks that are based in non-democratic and hybrid political environments, which 
comes along with certain specifics of working, of course. Could you maybe explain what the role of think tanks are in your definition and how they maybe differ from other research-based or research-focused institutions, such as universities, for example? I think in order to answer this question, we need to sort of try to define at least what think tanks are. And try to define is actually relatively difficult because there are very, very different conceptions and understandings of what think tanks are. There are also very different definitions that think tankers use themselves to describe themselves. But one of the most common, I guess, definitions in the think tank literature or think tank research is that think tanks are research institutions that are engaged systematically in the study and analysis of either a particular policy field or a broad range of policy issues. And what is particular, what is specific maybe of think tanks in difference or in contrast to universities is that they actively try to influence either policymakers' decision-making or inform public debates. So they are not impartial, which at least in pure research is always the ambition, right? So you're, you're in it for the objective truth, whatever that is then, but think tanks are different. They are trying to influence something. So could they also be kind of lobbying organizations in a certain way? But only in a certain way. And if we look into the history of how think tanks, how first think tanks emerged before the Second World War, their ambition was indeed to to produce research which would be impartial, with, uh, sort of speaking truth to power, serving public interests, and not necessarily positioning themselves as partial or as partisan institutions. They were supposed to be impartial and nonpartisan. This is also a claim that many contemporary think tanks are trying also to convey. If I look even into the description of your think tank, that is also part of, of your description, of course, of your mission and vision. And that is what many think tankers at least need also to do in order to claim credibility and establish trustworthiness uh, for their research products and for their research work. So I wouldn't say that think tanks are per se always partial or always partisan. At least in most of the cases, or in many cases, the ambition is to remain impartial. Whether that works or not in reality, this is a different question. And simultaneously, of course, there are think tanks that are comparable in a way to lobby organizations in the literature. They are known as so-called advocacy tanks. So those think tanks that are trying to promote a particular vision of policy or a particular policy solution. But they are part, only part of, of the think tank landscape, of the overall landscape that we see, in, regardless of whether we look into democratic or non-democratic regimes. So this is a good distinction because you are not looking only at think tanks in general, but as you said, you are focusing particularly on think tanks that operate under, let's say, not fully free conditions in uh, non-democratic countries or these hybrid uh, regimes that are somewhere in between. Now, what are the main differences if you compare a think tank operating in a Western democracy and one operating in some of these hybrid or non-democratic countries? 
That is a very difficult question, actually, because in my research, I also do not pursue this direct comparison. This is something I reserve for later research. But I could try at least to partially answer this question, because from what we observe, of course, the windows of opportunity to influence policy and public debates are very different in completely closed authoritarian environments. If we sort of look into this spectrum of fully democratic, ideal, typical you know, regime, and fully closed autocratic uh, or dictatorial regime, then of course there would be huge differences between the possibilities of think tanks to engage in public discourses. The possibilities to influence policy might be also very different, but not necessarily the way we would immediately assume. Because in many authoritarian environments, think tanks that are established, they are not necessarily part of civil society, what we commonly observe in more consolidated and liberal democracies but rather they are continuation of state structures. They are established by the state in order either to advise, indeed, to perform this advisory function and advise policymakers in particular areas where the, their expertise is needed. And for instance, financial sector is one of such areas. Climate change is one of such areas. Or for that matter, foreign and security policy could be another area where their expertise might be quite on demand also by policymakers in non-democratic regimes. But they can also perform in those regimes a very different function. They can also communicate policies to the broader public in a certain way. And particularly so-called performance autocracies are relying on this function of think tanks, where in their public, in the public domain of their activities, think tank may perform this communicative function, transmitting certain policy ideas from the state to the general public, and at times even engaging into state propaganda. Can you give some examples, maybe, of such think tanks? I could make an example of a particular country, of course, mm -hmm. from my own research, because one of the country cases in my research project is Russia. And I have recently completed a study of particularly this communicative aspect of how think tanks in Russia communicated the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change. And I compared two particular think tanks and their communication strategies or discursive strategies, as I call them, and looked into how in their publications, so in those that are openly accessible on their websites, they framed the crisis. And what I found out is that one of the state-linked think tanks, and there are basically almost no space anymore in Russia for non-state-linked think tanks, for independent state-independent think tanks. So what I found out was that one of those think tanks was openly engaged in state propaganda when communicating the COVID-19 pandemic, which was obviously also a very salient issue between 2020 and 20, February 2022. That was the span of my analysis the time span. And this is what I think was very illustrative of this particular think tank's discursive strategies. Now, when we look at things from a business angle, if I'm a business executive, a CEO of a company, why does this matter? Is that something that I should pay attention to? Can I trust the information? Do I have to work with it? Is that something that is important to me? especially in those difficult situations where we have state-linked actors that maybe are not fully trustworthy? Well, that depends which think tanks we are talking about. If we are talking about state-linked think tank in Russia, uh, we can assume that they serve particularly state and regime interests. 
But normally in, in somewhat more open political regimes, even if they are not full-fledged democracies, there is a range or, of different types of think tanks. So we, uh, we talked already about the advocacy tanks, uh, but there are also so-called corporate think tanks or think tanks that serve the interests in a way of their clients. So they work in a way as consultancies. And this is of particular interest, of course, for businesses, especially if they are co- coming to a new market be it uh, some sociological data that needed, be it market segment analysis or whatever sectors that might be of interest to particular businesses, they can be also analyzed by think tanks, of course, also that are locally based. And this information, I think, can be an important source for decision whether to engage in, into business activities uh, or come to a new market for a business. Now, you said initially that uh, part of your definition of a think tank was that uh, they try to influence policy, other than maybe traditional research departments at universities. Uh, But then you said, especially in these hybrid regimes, and you mentioned Russia as one example, most of these think tanks are state-linked, and they often act as um, kind of extended spokespersons or spokesorganizations to the to the regime itself. Now, do they also influence the other way around? Do they influence policy or do they try to influence policy or are they there more to influence public opinion? So in which way do they try to exert any influence if they have it at all? That is a a very difficult question to study in a closed political environment, of course. So how much influence think tanks have which channels they use in order to exert influence on policymakers, whether they communicate the same messages behind closed doors as they do in their public domain, right, in in their publications, which are targeting general audiences. This question is generally difficult to study also in democratic environments because, I mean, there is no smoking gun in order, you know, between cause and effect in order to see how much influence or impact a particular think tank or a particular initiative of a certain think tank had on a policy change, for instance. Yeah, But in closed political environments, it is even more difficult because in order to have insight into those processes, you need to have trust and uh, you need to have, first of all, access to the think tank world, to the representatives of the think tanks. And on the other hand, also they are trust uh, for them in order to to share information and some insights from their work. But nevertheless, this is not impossible. These are also questions that I engage with in, in my own research. And what I observe, not necessarily from the case of Russia, but from other case studies that I have in, in my research, is that there is variance in terms of what influence, how much influence think tanks at least attempt to to exert, which channels they use. And that depends on how they position themselves, whether they are indeed funded completely by the state and are state-sponsored. So they, in many cases, provide their analytical reports directly, for instance, to either line ministries or presidential administration. Whether these reports are being read and implemented, that is a different question, of course, but this is one of the channels 
If the think tanks are not solely funded by the state or not funded by the state at all, so who position themselves as independent, if there is space for that in an authoritarian or hybrid political environment, they can also go another way. They can try to create public pressure in that they make their findings, the findings of their research, publicly available. And through the public pressure, they push for certain policy solutions. What about international think tanks. I mean, there are a lot of globally operating think tanks that work in many countries, including some of these hybrid, semi-democratic or non-democratic regimes. How is there space for maneuvering and how is that maybe also changing? Think tanks that were initially founded in Western democracies and then became active transnationally and opened up their offices in countries that were democratizing, for instance, uh, as it was in the post-Soviet space in the 1990s, and then faced the trends towards de-democratization or re-autocratization. And for suddenly facing either the need to close those offices or to downscale their activities to sometimes, well, move their offices to other countries which are still focusing on similar activities, but from outside of the initial country where the office was located. So there certainly is also an adaptation to the local conditions. If we talk about think tanks of that kind, we must also think that think tanks that act transnationally If they open an office in another country, normally that office would need to be registered under the local legal provisions. And normally they are registered as NGOs or nonprofit organizations. And all the restrictions that may apply to other NGOs would apply, of course, to those offices in that case. And this is something which needs to be kept in mind in which certainly has impediments also on the work of um, offices of transnational think tanks. Do you see that sometimes these think tanks may also, to avoid maybe closure or difficulties, try to maybe tone down their rhetoric or adapt a little bit in terms of what they put out there? So kind of a preemptive um, adaptation to maybe the wishes of uh, some of these regimes? Partly this is the case. This is uh, the case not only for uh, local offices of transnational think tanks. It is certainly the case for local think tanks. It is also the case for any international actor that would like to be engaged locally in a non-fully democratic environment or any political environment for that matter. There is the need to adapt to what is locally acceptable in order to be able to work in a particular country. So there is certainly also an adaptation in the rhetoric and in the range of activities among the think tanks that become active locally elsewhere. What we have also seen from the case of Russia, for instance, that uh, some of the think tanks are active transnationally that were initially founded in Russia, for instance. One, one of the well-known examples uh, is the so-called Valdai Club or Valdai Discussion Club in Russia, which was founded in the 2000s and served as a tool of public diplomacy or expert diplomacy in a way and invited a lot of international experts to publish with them. So what you find now on their website is not only product of, uh, you know, brain products of Russian think tankers or Russian experts, but also of international, including Western European and North American experts. And what happens when a country like Russia 
goes in in the opposite direction to democracy, to democratization, such as we observed, especially after February 2022, of course, is that the there is on the one hand the closure of space, of the window of opportunity for experts who were publishing with think tanks like that, closure of uh, previous networks that were established, but also withdrawal, of course, of European and North American experts who were previously wanted to connect also with, with the Russian experts. There is a complete withdrawal from these activities by the experts coming from outside of Russia. Often, then these regimes accuse these think tanks, as far as I understand, of being agents uh, of the West, trying to promote values that are not part of uh, the local culture and so on. Is that true in your opinion or is that more kind of an argument to get rid of uh, some of these uh, more uncomfortable voices? I think there is no absolute truth in this claim. So to some uh, extent, you can understand why these accusations are coming. When you look, for instance, into the post-Soviet space and how neoliberal non-governmental organizations, including think tanks that were established as NGOs in the 1990s, how this process went about, much of what was going on was funded from outside of the countries, obviously. So Donor, the international donor community were the ones who were providing what was called core institutional funding for the development of uh, non-governmental structures. And certainly there was also one trend that could be observed was that think tanks that were established back then did not necessarily serve fully served fully the demands of national policymakers because the demand was partly not there. But rather, the demand was determined by the uh, international donor agencies. And this is, I think, where these claims and accusations are coming from, in a way. Nevertheless, the uh, institutional support that we observed in the 1990s was also crucial, of course, for establishing alternative voices, for establishing uh, also the culture of think tanking which was not present in, in the countries of the post-Soviet space uh, before the 1990s. So even the think tanks that sort of emerged from restructuring themselves from what previously existed, so research institutes within the Academy of Sciences, for instance, of the Soviet Union, that in the early 1990s sort of rebranded, restructured themselves into this more neoliberal type of think tanks, this would not have happened without the institutional and financial support from outside. So these are trends that had both, in a way, positive and negative effects, and they can be instrumentalized, of course, also by the governments that would like to claim that there is too much influence by external powers, uh, by external funders, and so on. Vera, one segment in our podcast is what we call... A bold prediction... The world in 10 years. We ask our guests to look into the future, as difficult as it is, and we know that, to give us an idea of how they think the world will look like in 10 years from now. So about the topic that we are discussing here, think tanks in particular, in those semi-democratic or non-democratic 
environments. What do you think? How will the landscape look like in 10 years? I think the landscape will be diversifying further. There are very, very different forms of think tanks that exist already now. So we talked about advocacy tanks. We talked about corporate think tanks. There are also something which is normally called universities without students or university think tanks, so more academic type. Uh, these are sort of the classical differentiation. But there are also think and do tanks, for instance, that are think tanks that serve very different interests, including also public interests. And I think this process of diversification among the forms of think tanks will be going further. And it will be accompanied also with the plurality of think tank activities, because in order to survive institutionally as organizations, think tank do engage in very different fields of activities, and they will continue doing so. Another trend, which I think we will observe in the next 10 years, is the growing divide between sort of this classical understanding of think tanks as providers of neutral evidence-based knowledge of, and policy solutions and what we could term uncivil think tanks. So as we can talk about uncivil civil society, so serving particular needs, uh, ser serving populist interests, for instance, the same trend we will probably also observe in the think tank community. Is that also a trend that is maybe going in the other direction? I mean, we talked a lot about mostly Western think tanks operating, for example, in Russia or, or the difficulties that they face. But of course, there's also the, the other way around. So we know that countries such as Russia, they have been accused of interfering, for example, in the election process in the US, also in other European countries. The same is being said about China. So are these non-democratic regimes also using think tanks or think tank-like structures in order to try to influence public opinion or maybe even policy in democratic countries? I mean, if, if we are talking about a country like Russia that certainly engages in public diplomacy efforts with particular aims, then think tanks is just one tool, right, that can be used to these ends including the, the, those tools may include also other, for instance, mass media, social media uh, channels. And think tanks can be more or less helpful tools or instrumental tools uh, in that sense. They might not be the most influential, especially if there is a general understanding that this was a think tank established by Russian government. And I think this this is something which is relatively difficult to use for Russia right now under the current uh, circumstances. But what can and probably will be used further are the transnational expert networks, which are not necessarily institutionalized as think tanks or groups of experts, but rather relatively loose networks, which nevertheless allow for transmission of ideas, for transmission of certain policy solutions or policy options, including also in foreign and security policy, of, of course. And these networks, they exist partly among states that do not have democratic regimes, but partly also trans regimes, so to say. So they exist spanning the expert knowledge of stemming from non-democratic and from democratic environments. So I think this will also continue further. Can you explain a little bit more what these transnational expert networks are? One example could be uh, the uh, 
famous new Silk Road from China, Chinese initiative, the One Road, One Belt initiative. They have, for instance, their own think tank network. Another example is the um, Eurasian Economic Union, led by Russia. They also have a think tank initiative, for instance, which spans uh, the think tanks coming from the member states of this organization. So networks of that kind, they are certainly already there. And I would expect this trend to grow. So they are state-organized or quasi-state-organized networks of think tanks, not of individual researchers, but of think tanks or think tank-like institutions. It can be both. It can be both uh, because in, in some cases, depending on which think tanks we are talking about, this, are, this can be also relatively small think tanks. Nevertheless, quite influential because the face of the think tank, so the leader of the think tank, may be quite a prominent expert. So in most of the cases, uh, these are both. They are spanning think tanks as organizations and including also individual experts. Let's talk a little bit about the role of the media because I think that one primary transmission vehicle for think tanks to get their information or their um, policy positions into the public domain, into the um, public arena is through the media. Is there a difference again between Western media or media in open and liberal societies and those in, in non-democratic uh, settings? I would not draw a clear line there. From from my own research, what I observe in um, non-democratic and semi-democratic environments is that those think tanks that are state-linked, in many cases, have also very established links to particular state-linked media. So they use their networks with the media representatives in in a very, in a way, institutionalized also way. Because of the funding structures, because of how media systems work in those countries, that determines this trend. At the same time, think tanks that position themselves as more state-independent in hybrid and non-democratic political environments, they very often opt for working either with non-state media, if such as those are present, or with social media, increasingly even so, What we even observe in some of the countries, also in my country example in my project, is that some think tanks prefer to engage into policy debates in social media, for instance, on Facebook or tele through their Telegram channels. So this is the preferred sort of way to communicate and preferred, you know, community building exercise on social media in a way. Because it allows them to cut out the the middle man or the the middle the intermediary in there through the role of the media it is more direct it is certainly they consider i guess that that would make them more in control of the messages they're trying to convey than if it's done through conventional media channels <laughs> How big do you see the risk of disinformation through think tanks, if, especially if they are somehow directly or indirectly influenced by a state actor? Is that real? Is it maybe even bigger than with other sources because they have this quasi-impression of being impartial research-based? I certainly see this risk. We need to differentiate between misinformation and disinformation here in this question, of course, misinformation being rather unintentional and disinformation being intentional. 
What we observe in the case of Russia, for instance, because I work, of course, on Russia more, that is why I use a lot of examples from this particular country, is that in their public discourses, think tanks do engage in what can be certainly seen as disinformation or into conveying very particular messages through subtle, in a subtle way. So it doesn't have to be direct disinformation in the sense of presenting false facts, but it can be repackaging of the facts the way that certainly uh, manipulates the perception of the reality in a very certain way, especially if we are talking about foreign policy. That was evident, for instance, in, in the study that I conducted on the communication of the COVID crisis. So there is this risk, and you are right. On the one hand, think tanks are in many cases perceived as impartial, evidence-based information providers. And that makes them, in the eyes of those who consume the knowledge that they produce, trustworthy, right? Sources of knowledge. So that can be, of course, used also by, by state actors, by state leaderships to their own ends in order to control the overall narrative in a way and policy discourses. On the other hand, what we observe, they are trying to provide partial information. They are trying to provide very particular view of things. So if communicating the COVID-19 pandemic is linked to a very particular geopolitical view and geopolitical stance, then that certainly can influence also those who read this information. And this is also being picked up, of course, by state media in Russia and used for, for their own purposes. For, for the purposes of uh, also propaganda and propagating of particular state-endorsing messages. So it's both, it's, it's both the confusing kind of trend and the trend towards trying to influence the audiences in a particular direction. That sounds a little bit like straight out of George Orwell's 1984 to a certain extent. What I see here is two things, and I don't have a clear answer to that, but maybe you have one or a solution, is that on the one hand, we seem to have a misunderstanding, by the way, in global audiences, not necessarily linked to the type of regime, of how a research-based discourse works in the sense is that experts will never agree, especially not on things that are ongoing. And we saw this in the COVID-19 pandemic that even serious experts, they were continuously disagreeing. They were maybe also contradicting each other because they learned new things, which is part of the research process, actually. So there can never be an absolute truth unless a matter is kind of really settled and there is a, an acceptable body of knowledge uh, within the academic community. So that's one thing. And then on the other side, we see this absolute fluidity in the sense is that some people claim that everything depends on the perspective, right? So um, how you see the war in Ukraine, it depends, right? So the West uh, sees it as an aggression of Russia vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Russian official position is that they were somehow attacked and they had to defend themselves. And both positions are somehow equal. So there is no absolute truth. Everything depends on the way you see it or you frame it. So we have this absolute Orwellian fluidity in the way of reframing issues in one way or another. How can we, as a global community, how can we solve this? How can we 
have a discourse that on the one end allows for open engagement, disagreement, gradual accumulation of knowledge, but at the same time also makes clear that not everything is debatable. There are some things that are just facts and they cannot be discussed or negated at will. Is there something we can do? That is a difficult one. I know. <laughs> um, I mean, of course, whatever the debate is, there needs to be a certain common ground on established facts. So as long as we can agree that, okay, these are the facts that is very difficult to question or that we cannot question, then we can start a conversation in a way. Whether Russia has its own perspective on uh, what the causes of Russia's aggression against Ukraine were and their position is that the, these were preemptive kind of acts and so on. So you, we, we know all of those, of course, narratives well by now. And this is, of course, one vision, sort of one standpoint. On the other hand, we have the view of Ukraine and we have the view of supporters of Ukraine in Western Europe and North America. And we have an established fact that one country invaded another without an immediate imminent threat to its own security. So if we establish this fact, at least, as a non-questionable fact, then we can start from there, I think, engaging into expert discourses on how things got there and how we can solve this. What we see in general, I think, and this is another difference, I guess, of think tank experts in contrast to university researchers or academic researchers is that, or scientists, that scientists and academic researchers tend to see all those different viewpoints, right? So they try to say, okay, on the one hand, so they, as, as we say, they have too many hands, right? So on the one hand is this, on the other hand is that, and we need to consider all of these factors. And scientists, by engaging into this hand perspectives business, in a way transmit uncertainty because of the plurality of arguments that can be taken into consideration. And this doesn't matter which crisis we are talking about, whether we are talking about a military crisis or whether we are talking about a health crisis. What think tanks do, they try to, in a way, sell certainty. They try to provide concrete policy solutions or say, this is the way to go. Even when they as in the case of Russia, in some cases of the think tanks that I observed, they engage into confusing the audiences. They usually do it not in one take, not in one piece sort of that they publish, but rather if you read all of their products, what they have published so far, you can be confused by what actually their narrative is, what were they trying to say. But in each particular piece, they are trying to sell certainty. And this is where we need, in general, to be careful about because a knowledge product which has a particular argument and a particular view of things can always be questioned critically. And I think this is also the way how we need to read policy research, always with a bit of skepticism and criticism in mind, thinking of where it comes from, who is the source, so keeping this critical distance to the source of the knowledge producer. 
As always, we can never cover everything there is on a particular topic in this podcast. Uh, so we ask our guests to provide us with some reading advice or our listeners with some reading advice in our executive briefing. Executive briefing, what you should read now. If uh, some of our listeners would like to learn more about the role of think tanks and how they operate in different contexts, what would you recommend as a reading? Well, one book that I would like to recommend, this is relatively recent. This is Handbook on Think Tanks in Public Policy from 2021. It's authored by Donald, or rather edited, it's a collective volume. It is edited by Donald Abelson and Christopher Rastrick. It provides a very nice, I think, compilation of chapters, including also cross-regional, cross-country perspectives. So it's not centered only on think tanks in Europe or the US. And another one is also a book, and it is actually not on think tanks. It is on scientists and other experts' performance in, in public domain, sort of. So how scientists and other experts, so you could extend it also to the think tank community, perform, which roles they perform in their public engagements. And this is the book by Roger Pilke. It's not new, it's from the 2000s, and it's titled The Honest Broker, Making Sense of Science in Policy and Politics. Great. They sound like great choices. And as always, we will put links to those titles in the show notes. So if you don't have a pen available right now, you don't need to write it down. Just go to the show notes and you will find it there. Vera, we've already come to the end of our podcast episode. Thank you very much for being with us, for shedding some light on this important topic. Thank you so much. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.